Section 27 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. Charles, Louis, and Parliament. Part 6. It was then with a frank return to the policy of Clarendon that Charles and Danby met Parliament on April 13, 1675, and the Lambeth edicts were quoted in the King's speech as an earnest of his intention to regard the church in its double aspect as a protestant church opposed to popery and an established church opposed to dissent but danby altogether outdid clarendon in the bid which was made for cavalier support among other chimeras they discoursed of none having any beneficial offices but cavaliers or sons of cavaliers but for more pageantry the old king's statue on horseback of brass was brought out to be set up at charing cross but does not yet see the light the old king's body was to be taken up to make a perfect resurrection of loyalty and to be reinterred with great magnificence but that sleeps before they grappled with business both houses and no one more heartily than charles himself gave themselves the luxury of a good laugh over another king's speech which was found scattered about the house of commons and which is one of the most precious pieces of contemporary literature it was ascribed and with probability to andrew marvell who was member for kingston upon hull the most complete master of prolonged banter that the language owns it ran thus april the thirteenth sixteen seventy five my lords and gentlemen i told you at our last meeting that the winter was the fittest time for business and in truth i thought it so till my lord treasurer assured me that the spring is the fittest time for salads and subsidies i hope therefore this april will not prove so unnatural as not to afford plenty of both some of you may perhaps think it dangerous to make me too rich but do not fear it i promise you faithfully whatever you give i will take care to want and yet in that you may rely on me i will never break it although in other things my word may be thought a slender authority my lords and gentlemen i can bear my own straits with patience but my lord treasurer doth protest that the revenue as it now stands is too little for us both one of us must pinch for it if you do not help us out i must speak freely to you i am under encumbrances for besides my whores in service my reformado ones lie hard upon me i have a pretty good estate i must confess but odds fish i have a charge on it here is my lord treasurer can tell you that all the monies designed for the summer's guards must of necessity be applied for the next year's cradles and swaddling clothes what then shall we do for ships i only hint that to you that's your business not mine i know by experience i can live without them i lived twenty years abroad without ships and was never in better health in my life but how well you can live without them you had best try i leave it to yourselves to judge and therefore only mention it i do not intend to insist upon that there is another thing which i must press more earnestly which is this it seems a good part of my revenue will fail in two or three years 
except you will please to continue it. Now I have this to say for it. Why did you give me so much, except you resolved to give on as fast as I call for it? The nation hates you already for giving so much. I will hate you now if you do not give me more. So that your interest obliges you to stick to me, or you will not have a friend left in England. On the other hand, if you continue the revenue as desired, I shall be able to perform those great things for your religion and liberty, which I have long had in my thoughts, but cannot effect it, without this establishment. Wherefore look to it. If you do not make me rich enough to undo you, it shall be at your doors. For my part, I can with a clear conscience say I have done my best, and shall leave the rest to my successors. But if I may gain your good opinion, the best way is to acquaint you what I have done to deserve it out of my royal care for your religion and property. For the first, my late proclamation is the true picture of my mind. He that cannot, as in a glass, see my zeal for the Church of England, doth not deserve any other satisfaction, for I declare him willful, abominable, and not good. You may perhaps cry, how comes this sudden change? To that I reply in a word, I am a changeling. That I think a full answer. But to convince men yet further that I mean as I say, there are these arguments. First, I tell you so, and you know I never break my word. Second, my Lord Treasurer says so, and he never told lies in his life. Third, my Lord Lauderdale will undertake for me, and I should be loath by any act of mine to forfeit the credit he has with you. If you desire more instances of my zeal, I have them for you. For example, I have converted all my natural sons from popery, and I may say without vanity, it was more my work and much more peculiar to me than the getting of them. It would do your hearts good to hear how prettily little George can read already the Psalter, they are all fine children, God bless them, and so like me in their understandings. But as I was saying, I have to please you, given a pension to your favorite, my Lord Lauderdale. Not so much that I thought he wanted it, as I knew you would take it kindly. I have made Carwell a duchess and married her sister to my Lord Pembroke. I have made Crewe Bishop of Durham. I have at my brother's request sent my lord Inchiquin to settle the Protestant religion at Tangier, and at the first word of my lady Portsmouth I preferred Prideau to be bishop of Chichester. I do not know what factious men would have, but this I am sure of, that none of my predecessors did ever anything like this to gain the goodwill of their subjects. So much for religion. I must now acquaint you that by my lord treasurer's advice, I have made a considerable retrenchment on my expenses in candles and charcoal, and do not intend to stick there, but, with your help, to look into the like embezzlements of my dripping pans and kitchen stuff, of which, by the way, on my conscience neither my Lord Treasurer nor my Lord Lauderdale are guilty. But if you should find them dabbling in that business, I tell you plainly, I leave them to you, for I would not have the world think I am a man to be cheated. My lords and gentlemen, I would have you believe of me, as you always found me, 
and I do solemnly profess that whatever you give me, it shall be managed with the same thrift, trust, conduct, and prudence and sincerity that I have ever practiced since my happy restoration. The session which had been so anxiously anticipated and so humorously ushered in disappointed the expectations of both sides. Danby failed completely in establishing his cavalier episcopal system. The opposition failed, though barely, to drive Charles from his positions. Wholesale bribery had practically made the court and country parties even. Votes were lost or carried by a single voice, and passions were so heated that on one occasion swords were drawn, and but for the promptitude of the speaker, blood would have been shed on the floor of the house. But the objects of the country party were clearly defined. The recall of English troops in the French service, the defense of Flanders against Louis, the disbanding the army in England, the suppression of Catholicism, and the refusal to allow men holding office under the crown to sit in Parliament. The commons were on guard against France, popery, and absolutism, and declined to consider any legislation. Their proceedings were watched with eager anxiety by the foreign ambassadors, who personally waited upon members as they came in and out of the house. So pressed was Charles by his own people, by Spain and by the Republic, to defend the Low Countries and force Louis to peace, that he declared to Rouvigny that he was like a besieged fortress. In June he once more took the natural way of escaping by proroguing Parliament until October. By that time, Louis needed more than ever to secure the neutrality of England. Turenne had been killed, and Condé had given up his command. The French armies had suffered disaster after disaster, and their allies, the Swedes, had been crushingly defeated by the Dutch. The state of France itself was deplorable. The treasury was exhausted. The peasantry were seething with discontent. Armed revolt had broken out in Brittany and in Bordeaux. Rouvigny redoubled his efforts to secure a French party. But a French party in the House of Commons he found it impossible to secure. It was clear, indeed, that the next session would be vehemently anti-French, especially as Danby made no secret of his views. Louis was now well served by the fact that there were two oppositions, the opposition in the Commons, the Country Party, and the clique of which Shaftesbury was the leader. The Country Party had causes first in view. Shaftesbury had persons. The one wanted, as has been said, to frustrate the designs of France and the Catholics and to be rid of the fear of military force. The other, while hoping to secure toleration for Protestant dissent, sought in the first place to overthrow Danby. Louis therefore applied to Shaftesbury and his friends. Their terms were simple. With political immorality which outdid that of Charles himself, they threw over the aspirations of the country party without hesitation. If Louis would help them to destroy Danby, they would withdraw their opposition to his plans. Shaftesbury was closeted with James, and a coalition was established of nonconformists, Catholics, and Louis, 
a retort to Danby's scheme of cavalier Anglicanism. James received £20,000 from France for distribution at the end of the session on the condition that the English troops were not recalled nor any vote passed hostile to France. Louis had tricked both Charles and the Commons by this intrigue, which was carried out in the profoundest secrecy. In the same secrecy he pressed upon Charles, through the potent influence of Louise de Kerouaille, the necessity of being free from the control of Parliament. And in September 1675, by the promise of £100,000 a year, drew from him an engagement to decline William's proposed visit to England and to dissolve Parliament if it were still violent against France, or if it refused to provide him with money. Thus he was safe on both sides. Parliament met on October 13, 1675. It gave no supply except to build ships, while Shaftesbury, hopeless of overthrowing Danby so long as the present House of Commons continued, pressed both there and in the Lords for the dissolution which Louis was urging directly on Charles. A Parliament, he said, elected so many years before, no longer represented the people, especially when a large proportion of the members had offices or pensions. He forgot that a still larger number hoped for them. As Danby said long afterwards, they came about him like so many jackdaws for cheese at the end of every session. There was indeed, we quote Marvel once more, an handful of salt, a sparkle of soul, that hath hitherto preserved this gross body from putrefaction, some gentlemen that are constant, invariable, indeed Englishmen, like Marvel himself. But the handful was growing less, the sparkle dimmer. Shaftesbury was foiled in his principal design, but he succeeded in rendering business impossible by raising the former dispute between the two houses, and Charles was forced to close the session. Nonetheless, he bitterly disappointed Shaftesbury and his friends. It was certain that a new house would consist of men still more opposed to the prerogative. Instead, therefore, of dissolving, he prorogued, contrary to the desire of most and the expectation of every man, to February 1677, an interval of fifteen months. He then, with cool audacity, demanded his subsidy from Louis, which had been promised for a dissolution only. To Louis, however, English neutrality was the essential point, and that neutrality was safe for those fifteen months if he could keep Charles dependent on him. After a good deal of haggling and with a clear intimation that he regarded the whole thing as a swindle, he gave way. He was rewarded when, in spite of all that Danby could do, Charles farther agreed, at the very moment when his representatives were supposed to be acting at Nijmegen as impartial mediators in the negotiations for peace, that neither monarch should listen to any proposition from abroad contrary to the other's welfare, or make a treaty with the Dutch or any other state except by mutual consent. Danby utterly refused to sign the treaty, declaring that his head would not be safe. Even Lauderdale kept aloof. Charles was obliged to write out and sign the document with his own hands. This he did yesterday morning, February 26, 1676, 
after which he lighted a wax candle himself and affixed his seal to his signature at the same time saying it was only a seal with his cipher for that a little while since he had lost his seal with his arms which were engraved on a diamond of king james's grandfather and which when the deceased king was on the scaffold he gave to the bishop of london to be delivered into his hands End of section 27.